Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 is our text for today. This is the 13th sermon in a series through the New Testament book of Romans. Today's message is 37 handwritten pages, and the title of the message today is Only the Good Die Saved. Please turn to Romans chapter 2, and as you are turning, please remember throughout the remainder of this sermon that God loves you, and remember that for the remainder of your life. Listen as I read Romans 2, verses 6 through 11. A little bit of a spoiler alert today. This is a tough text to interpret, so you're going to need to work with me. Hear the word of the Lord. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Uh, Father in heaven, I do ask for your grace and your power and your strength and the filling of your spirit every time I preach. But Lord, I especially need it today. And so Lord, I pray that my words would be, uh, Lord, understandable. I pray that they would be interesting. I pray, dear Lord, that they would communicate truth and conviction, and I pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be glorified as we examine ourselves. We see Christ as our only hope. Help us, Lord, to make our way through this passage, and then once we have understood it, I pray, God, that we can delight in it, that we can delight in you, and Lord, we can do what it says. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's our outline today. I have four points. We're going to be looking at the confusion We're going to be looking at the communication, we're going to be looking at the content, and then finally, we're going to be looking at the Christ. For starters, I want you to join me in saying hello to the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is an expression used to describe an obvious problem that people avoid discussing or acknowledging. There is an elephant in the room in this text. If you haven't seen it already, I will point it out to you. I find it fascinating how Christians will read passages of Scripture which on the surface seem to contradict what they believe, and yet they will pass over it as though it isn't there. And I'm not talking just about casual Bible readers. Even Bible commentators will skip over difficult passages. It will remain the elephant in the room. Well, when we look at a passage and we're not exactly sure what it means, or it doesn't seem to fit in with our theology, and yet we do not say anything at all about it, and we do not question what may appear to be an apparent contradiction, uh, what we're doing is we're allowing the elephant to remain in the room and not saying a word about it. In Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, the verses that I just read, they seem to be saying on the surface that in the final judgment, we will be judged by God based upon our works and that we will not be judged based upon grace or the imputed righteousness 
of Jesus Christ. And so the elephant in the room is, are we justified by works or are we justified by faith? Which brings us to point number one, and that is the confusion. Do you see why these verses pose a potential problem? Do you see the conundrum? Do you see the mystery? Do you see the paradox? Everything that we as Bible-believing Christians ever say about salvation stresses the fact that we are not saved by good works. Paul himself in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 9 says that salvation is not of works. And even Paul himself in this very book, the book of Romans, in the very next chapter over in chapter 3 verse 28 says this, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The whole point of the Protestant Reformation, the whole point of the Christian gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith apart from works. And yet when you read the verses that we are dealing with today, they seem to say on the surface that our justification is based upon works. Uh, Let me read the verses again. Pay close attention as I read this time and see if you can figure it out. It says in verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Here we go. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Only the good die saved, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Well, how in the world do we reconcile this confusion? Are we saved by faith alone in Christ alone, or are we judged based upon our works? Well, you can say that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone apart from works, and I would say that. In fact, I believe that with all my heart. In fact, I am staking my eternity on that. But at the same time, you have to address the elephant in the room, which says in verse 10, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. And by the way, this whole notion of being judged by our works is all over the Bible. It is in the Old Testament, in Proverbs 24, verse 12. It says, he will repay man according to his works. And in Psalm 62, verse 12, it says, for you will render to a man according to his work. And in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That's clearly talking about a judgment which is based on works. And we see it in the New Testament too. In 1 Peter 1.17, it says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And even in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 23, I will give to each of you according to your works. Revelation 20, 12 and 13. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had believed. No, that's not what it says. It says according to what they had done. Next verse. 
Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Only the good die saved. So do you see the potential confusion here? Are we judged based upon the blood and righteousness of Jesus by faith alone, in him alone, or are we judged according to our works and our deeds? The Bible seems to say that both are true, but how in the world can that be? How can we reconcile these two things? Well, here are some possible answers. Option number one is a very simple option. It's a very tidy option, and it says this. The Bible contradicts itself. Uh, Now, if that is true, that the Bible indeed does contradict itself, then what we are doing here this morning is a complete waste of time. If the Bible is the Word of God and God contradicts himself, either then he is a liar or he is incompetent or both, but in either case, there is no reason to believe in him. Well, I don't believe that the Bible does contradict itself. One of the reasons why that is not a reasonable uh, option is because Paul himself, who is the author of Romans chapter 2 and the author of Romans chapter 3, in chapter 2 says they were judged by works, and then in chapter 3 he says, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. So Paul doesn't have that short of a memory that he would contradict himself from one chapter to the next. So that is not a valid option. Option number two is the Roman Catholic option, which says, uh, yes, it is grace, and here's how grace works. Grace enables us to do works which we will present to God in the final day, and those works will be good enough to get us through the judgment. In other words, when you have faith in Christ, he will empower you to live a holy enough life to pass through the judgment. And so God helps you to become good enough to make it through his judgment. And the reason that this is not a valid option is because if you want to call that grace, it's not actually grace. Uh, Romans chapter 11 says grace is either all of grace or works or are all of works. It's either grace or works. It cannot be both. So if you want to go that way, in actuality, there is no grace. You're just actually working your way to heaven, which is not a valid option because salvation is not of works. The third option is equally ridiculous And that is that some say that Paul here is not talking about a saved lost situation, but he's only talking about rewards for believers. He's not referring to salvation at all. And the reason that that is ridiculous is because the same text which talks about how there will be rewards for those who are saved also speaks about wrath and fury, in other words, hell, being given to those who do bad. And so he's not going to contrast the rewards for those who are already saved with eternal damnation for those who don't know the Lord. It is absolutely apples and oranges. There is no parallelism there. It is absolutely ridiculous. Here is option number four. Now, I think that this one is reasonable. In fact, this is the one, if if I had to pick one, this is the one that I would go with. And that is that Paul is here speaking of good works which spring from a heart that has already been saved or regenerated. 
So what you have here in option four are the good works being evidence that the person has already been saved. They are evidentiary. They are not meritorious. Uh, Now, here's the weakness of this point, and and, and it's viable, but, but you have to do something to it in order to make it work. It's true that there's nothing in this passage about grace. So what you have to do is you yourself have to assume and you have to insert Jesus and the blood and the cross and faith and imputation and justification and atonement. You have to add all of those things. If indeed you do add them and those elements are are inserted, and we must assume them, we must add them ourselves, well, then once that true saving faith has been there, faith alone in Christ alone, what will happen as a result of that is that out of that heart will spring a good life. And the life will look something like what is described in verses 7 and 10, and that person will go to heaven, not based upon their good works, but those good works will be the evidence that they indeed were saved. Option number five is also viable. I I don't go with this one. In fact, I don't even really go with any of them. But uh, uh, number five is an option which is viable, and that is that the entire scenario that Paul is painting here is a hypothetical situation. In other words, what he's arguing is this. If, operative word being if, you live a life of selflessness for the glory of God, well, then you will have eternal life. However, since there is none righteous, no, not one, this is just a moot point, Nobody can live that kind of life, and therefore nobody has works that are good enough to save them. And so therefore it just becomes a hypothetical situation where nobody will be saved by works. Now, once again, I agree with the conclusion, but I don't think that that is the point that Paul is making here in Romans chapter 2. His point in chapter 2 is that God is not partial and that he is fair with everyone. Now, again, if I had to guess, I would say it's option number four. But again, you have to supply the Jesus and the blood and the substitution into the text. And, and, and then with that in play, place, the fruit of that justification will be our progressive sanctification described in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. But even with that guess of mine, to be honest with you, It is still confusing to me. Now, we have not solved the problem, at least not to my satisfaction. I am preaching a text which I fully do not know what it means. However, here's what we have done. We have addressed the elephant in the room, but he's not leaving, so does anyone have any peanuts? He's going to stick around uh, because I don't have an answer for him. The answer might become clearer as we work our way through point number two, but probably not, but maybe. Here's point number two, and that is the communication, the communication. Now, if you're listening to me today, and if in the middle of point number two, you pause and have a conversation with yourself and say, what in the world is he talking about? I think that's okay. 
uh, because this is going to be a somewhat convoluted point. And if you want to daydream during point number two and then jump back on the train in point number three, that today is acceptable. When I say the communication, I am strictly going to be talking now about the way in which the Apostle Paul makes his argument. You know, sometimes when we don't understand what a person is saying, uh, we can really start to understand them a little better if we try to understand how it is being said. So point number two, the communication is how is Paul saying whatever it is he is saying? What is the context? How is he constructing his argument? Are there any literary devices at play? Well, let's begin with the context. Here's the big picture. Romans chapter 1, Paul is making the point that Gentiles, non-Jews, are guilty sinners. And then he moves into chapter 2, and he begins to demonstrate how Jews, likewise, are guilty sinners. Which begs the question, who is his audience in chapter 2? And this is going to be a tad bit complicated, so please pay attention. The answer is, his audience in everything that he writes in the book of Romans is a Christian. He is writing to people who are already Christians. And we know that because back in chapter 1, verse 7, he tells them who the audience is. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So the audience is Christians. It's made up of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And in the church there in Rome, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians were having trouble getting along with one another. And so Paul writes a letter to them in order to clarify or to clear up how Jews and Gentiles as Christians together should get along within the church. But before he even gets to that point, he spells out what the gospel is. And he does it in great detail. And when I say great detail, I mean great detail. It takes him eight chapters to spell out what the gospel is. And part of the explanation of what the gospel is, is to explain how it, the good news of Jesus Christ, relates to both Jews and Gentiles together. And so his method, remember this point is the communication, the how it is being said. His method in talking about the Gentiles in chapter 1 is to refer to them, since he himself is not a Gentile, is to refer to them as they and their and them. And his method in chapter 2 in speaking about Jews is to speak to them in terms of we and you and your, because he himself is a Jew. And he does it through a literary device known as a diatribe. What is a diatribe? A diatribe is an imaginary conversation with an invented friend. And, and the, the reason you would use a diatribe as a, as a, as a rhetorical device in order to persuade someone is, is to make a point through an imaginary conversation, and that's what he's doing right here, and the conversation that he is having, remember from the last sermon, is having is with a guy which we have called Mr. Privileged Character. And Mr. Privileged Character thinks that he is going to heaven because he is Jewish. 
And he thinks that in the judgment that he is going to receive special treatment because he is one of God's chosen people, the Jews. But the argument made in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, is that Mr. Privileged Character is not going to receive special treatment. Mr. Privileged Character has misinterpreted the patience of God as a license to sin. In other words, he's saying to himself, since God has not zapped me yet, he is never going to zap me. And that misinterpretation is very dangerous. He is wrong. Because what he is actually doing is he is stockpiling sins for the final day, which are going to bring about additional wrath. So, in the context here, he is speaking to Christians. He is speaking about unsaved, self-righteous Jews. He is doing it by means of a diatribe. And he is attempting to prove to his imaginary, self-righteous Jewish friend that God is not going to give preferential treatment to the Jews. Now, that is the big picture. In fact, he's not going to give preferential treatment to anybody. So, his imaginary diatribe friend is an unsaved, self-righteous Jew, but his audience is a group of Christians living in Rome. Why? Why would you, why would you go about this in such a convoluted way. The reason you would do this is because Christians in Rome needed to understand how the gospel works for both Jews and Gentiles. Chapter 1 for Gentiles, chapter 2 for Jews. And his point, as I have stated many times and read a couple of times already, is that God does not show favoritism to anybody. Now, let's see if I can make it a little bit more complicated than it already is. The means within the diatribe of communicating this is through what is known as a chiasm. What is a chiasm or a chiastic construction? Remember, we are on point number two, which is speaking about communication, the the way in which it is being said. A chiasm is also a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then it is repeated in reverse order. So you say something, and then you say it again, but the second time you say it, you say it in reverse order, a chiastic or chiastic construction. Uh, The term chiasm comes from the Greek letter chi, which looks like our English letter X. And so you have the letter X. Well, you, you, you see the entire X. Well, this half of the X is the mirror image of that section of the X. Think of it in terms of this way. A, B, B, A. A, B, B, A. Or Abba. Not Dancing Queen Abba, but the letters A, B, B, A. And I want you to notice how this chiastic construction lines up in the text. And you're going to have to put on your thinking cap. You're going to have to look at the Bible. You're going to have to follow the pattern. And this one goes A, B, C, C, B, A. A, B, C, C, B, A. What does the chiasm look like? Well, if you look in verse 6, it will be that God will judge everyone equitably. And then you move on to letter B, and it speaks about the saved. Those who do good will attain eternal life. That's in verse 7. And then the C is those who do evil. 
will suffer wrath. That's in verse 8. And now we give the mirror image of that. We're going to say the same thing. We're just going to say it in reverse order. And we begin now with letter C on the backside, which says, there's wrath for those who do evil. That's in verse 9. And then letter B, as we're making our way out, there are, there's glory for those who do good in verse 10. And then finally, what we started with is what we end with in verse 11, and that is that God judges impartially. So the purpose of the chiastic or chiastic construction is to highlight or to accentuate a point. And what is that point? Well, Douglas Moo puts it this way, that when it comes to judgment, God will judge every person impartially, assessing each according to the same standard works. Therefore, since that is true, Mr. Privileged Character is not, in actuality, a privileged character. So let's put it all together and what do we have concerning the communication of the Apostle Paul in this section. First of all, you have the context as to why the book was written. And you have where we are in the book right now, addressing the Jews. And then you have the literary device, which is the diatribe. And then you have the immediate context, where we are introduced to Mr. Privileged Character, who has misconceptions about the mercy of God. And then you sum it up with the chiasm, which speaks about the impartiality of God. And all of these things together, if you put them together in a blender it will come out to say this one central truth, and that is that God is fair. God is not partial. The Jew is not going to receive special treatment at the judgment. Nobody is going to get special treatment at the judgment. So what is the application for you today? The application for you today is this. You are going to stand in the judgment. In that day you will not be a VIP. It does not matter who your family is. Your ethnicity is irrelevant. Your church affiliation will not come into play. Every once in a while, I get a text from Michael Cyrus. I love talking to Michael on the phone. I love getting texts from him. But every text, without fail, that he sends me, he ends it by saying, Michael Cyrus from North Shore Baptist Church, as if he's going to be confused with some other Michael Cyrus. <clears throat> Michael, I love the fact that you love me. I love the fact that you love your church. I love the fact that you like to identify with your church in the judgment. It will not in any way matter that you are Michael Cyrus from North Shore Baptist Church. You're just going to be Michael Cyrus, and you're just going to be you. Your church is not going to come into play at all. Your pedigree will be meaningless. God is not impressed with who you are. Judgment in the final day will be 100% impartial. So we've looked at point number one, the confusion. Point number two, the communication. Thank you for paying attention, both of you. Point number three, the content, the content. Now, as I stated above, I'm not exactly sure how to fit this text into my theology. 
I, I am very confident that Paul does not contradict himself. I am very confident that we do not work our way to heaven. But beyond that, I don't know how these verses and my soteriology or my doctrine of salvation mesh together. Uh, however, even if I did, it would not change the meaning of these verses. It would not impact the content. It means what it means. And we need to take it at face value and apply it, even if we are not able to insert it in a tidy way into our systematic theology. You see, just because a passage of Scripture does not fit neatly into my current understanding of systematic theology or the scheme that I have put together as to how the Bible fits together. Just because I can't fit a verse in neatly to my theology, it doesn't mean that I dismiss that verse, and it doesn't mean that I change the meaning of that verse and force it into my theology. It says what it says, and it says what it means, and we need to deal with it on face value, whether we can put it in our theology or not. And so let's do our best to explain the verses, and allow the Holy Spirit to honor God's Word. And let's trust God that just because our theology or my theology is not good enough to put all of this together, still God will use His Word for His people. Let's not impose a meaning on the passage which makes our theology fit into it in a tidy way. Well, here's what the Word actually says. Chapter 2, verse 6. It says, he will render to each one according to his works. Now that is a quote from Psalm 62, 12 and or Proverbs 24, verse 12. And since his imaginary friend would know the Old Testament and be familiar with those passages, then he would be forced to agree with this statement because it is a direct quote from the Old Testament. And so there's not going to be any argument from his diatribe friend here. He hears this and he reads that the basis upon which will God will render his judgment is the evaluation of your works. And here's the thing. He is omniscient. He has perfect knowledge. He has a perfect memory. Uh, it is all open and naked before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The good and the bad. He knows everything. It is all going to be in front of him there. And then he moves in verses 7 through 10 into breaking humanity down into two categories. Very simply, uh, category number one is those who will inherit eternal life. And category number two is those who will experience God's wrath and God's fury. Now, before we get into those two categories, let me, let me make a couple of observations. First of all, it's very interesting to note that the judgment described in verses 7 through 10 is not based upon certainly who these people are. So it doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't give any sort of an evaluation based upon what they know or what they intended to do or their motives or their heritage. It is based 100% percent 
upon what they have done. And Paul bends over backwards here to accentuate the point that this judgment is based upon what you have actually done. Verse 9, there will be distress for every human being who does evil. Verse 10, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. And so the facts are going to speak for themselves You can't argue with them. It is not what I intended. It's not what I meant to do. It's going to be a fair judgment based upon what you have done. It's clear, but it needs to be pointed out. The second thing that I want to point out, which maybe will help our theology fit in a little bit nicer to this, is this. When he speaks about the saved, he is not talking about a short sample of their life. He is not talking about a one-time decision or praying the sinner's prayer or looking in the direction of Jesus. But what he is describing here when he talks about the saved is the long-term general bent and direction of their life, the overarching theme of the person's life. In other words, that which characterizes this person over the long haul. And you say, Pastor, where do you get that? I get that in verse 7. It says, those who by patience in well-doing. Patience in well-doing. The word patience means long-term perseverance. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, somewhat sarcastically, but I think he hits the nail on the head. And he says, they are not people who take a sudden decision and seem to be all out for God. And it may last a month or two, and then they drop the whole thing. These people keep fighting the good fight of faith. They go on patiently with great endurance, sometimes wondering what will happen to them, but persevering with patient continuance in well-doing, end quote, and well said. You understand what Lloyd-Jones is saying here and what the Apostle Paul is saying. This is not talking about someone who made a one-time decision and then walked away from the faith. This is a person that if you look at them, the overall bent and characterization of their life from year to year is that they are engaged in good works. Now, this quote helps me to somewhat fit these verses into my theology because the saved person described in verses 7 and 10 could not, there is no possible way that they could endure the long haul of Christian living in the midst of creation if it were not for the fact that the gospel, the gospel of imputation, the gospel of substitution, the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone, unless the real power of the gospel was an actual saving act of God which changed their heart and kept them true to the Lord. You understand what I'm trying to say? I'm saying the proof that someone is actually a Christian is that the gospel has already done a work in their heart because there's no way that you could possibly live that way if God had not done that for you. They're not saved by their works, but their deeds over the long haul give evidence that there has been a work of grace by faith. The imputed righteousness of Christ, the power of the gospel has justified them And the evidence of that is the way that they live their life year after year. And so, with those considerations out of the way, 
let's look at the lost and then look at the saved. First of all, we're going to look at the lost in verse 8. What does it say about them? But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Note, first of all, they are self-seeking. They are self-centered. Their primary motive is themselves. Uh, They love and serve themselves. How many times have you heard someone saying in a divorce situation, I've just got to do what's best for me? They are their own God, and they worship and adore themselves. And, and, and it is it's an ugly expression of pride. It is me being in love with me. Why? Because I am interested in myself and what happens to me. That is my primary interest in life. And so these people are self-consumed. And then it says not only are they selfish, but it says in verse 8, they do not obey the truth. What is the truth? Well, the truth is the word of God. Sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth, Jesus said in John 17, 17. And what does the word of truth say? The word of truth, if we want to paint it in broad strokes, says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. These people are in love, but they are not in love with the Lord their God, and they don't love their neighbor as themselves. They love themselves, and therefore the rules of God do not apply to them. They do not consider themselves to be the least important person in the room. They do not obey what God commands. They are self-seeking. The self-seeking one here, notice, is obedient, but they are not obedient to the truth. Rather, it says in verse 8, look at it closely, they obey, they listen to, they follow, that they are, they are, they are going to comply with what unrighteousness demands of them. Sin tells them to indulge and they gladly snap to it. Sin tells them to put themselves on top and they gladly obey. And Paul says, that for this selfish, disobedient person, there will be wrath and fury. Fury is a word which means violent anger. God is not indifferent toward the selfish, disobedient person. He is fully engaged with wrath and fury, a violent expression of his anger. Listen to the words of 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9. Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey, there's that word, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory, hang on to that word, glory of his might. So this is a, this is a, this is a very sad and a very frightening reality. Being selfish is is not just a character trait. It it is something which marks you to be among the damned. Being selfish and being disobedient to God's word does more than just destroy your earthly relationships. And by the way, it does destroy your earthly relationships. Nobody likes a selfish person, even among atheists. They don't like selfish people. But it is not just a matter of us destroying our one another relationships. God is fully engaged in being angry with the selfish person. 
And it puts you in the crosshairs of his wrath and fury. What else does it say about the unsaved? In verse 9, it says this, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. The phrase, the Jew first and also the Greek, is simply there to accentuate that God does not play favorites, that he is not partial You remember back in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, when it talks about the glorious gospel. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. In salvation history, salvation is offered to the Jews first and then to the Greek. But likewise, when it comes to the judgment, with much privilege comes much responsibility. And in the final day, the Jew, because the Jew has had first the light and had so much light, they will be in a place of stricter judgment. What God is saying here by saying three different times to the Jew first and also to the Greek, he's saying your ethnicity does not profit you in any way, in either direction. It buys you absolutely nothing. Verse 9 is saying, every human being who does evil will experience tribulation and distress in the final day. So I ask you, not have you accepted Jesus as your personal Savior? I ask you, not have you joined the church? I ask you, not have you been baptized? But here is the question that I have for you knowing that one day you are going to go to the judgment. My question for you is this. Are you selfish? Do you obey unrighteousness or do you obey the truth? Do you do evil? Regardless of what you have professed to believe, regardless of your theology, if you are selfish and disobedient and evil, you will meet with wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. Is that you? Is that you? The saved are described in verses 7 and 10. Notice what it says about the saved in verse 7. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So the reward is eternal life in heaven for those who over the long haul do good And a mark of their doing good is that their motives will be that they seek for or desire or pursue glory and honor and immortality. Now, these three items clumped together are very similar. And what they refer to is having a desire to please God and being commended by him and enjoying his smile to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, the scripture talks a lot about glory and being glorified. Remember, we read in 2 Thessalonians that the person that will be in hell will be away from the glory of God. The desire for his smile is not only something which is commended, but it is something which marks you as a saved person. Listen very carefully to the words of Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 44. He's speaking to the Jewish religious leaders here, and he asks this question. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? 
and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. You understand what Jesus is saying to to them there? He's saying, you guys spend your time trying to impress one another and patting one another on the back. That is your desire. That's what you're looking for. Uh, How in the world can you actually believe if what you're doing is just trying to please one another and pat one another on the back instead of desiring and seeking the glory of the only God? My desire, my aim is to please him. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Whether we are present or whether we are absent, we make it our aim or our goal to please him. Do you, now, only you can answer this question, but, but I want you to think about this. Do you care what God thinks? Do you care about how you will be viewed in the judgment? Is it important to you to please him? Does it matter to you what God thinks? I had a very modest, very modest college football career. I don't talk much about it because there is video evidence to prove uh, how mediocre I was. So I don't want anybody going back and looking that up. But as I was playing on the field, here I would be, and and there would be, at the time, 80,000 people in the stands. And my now wife and then girlfriend would be in the stands. And there would be millions of people who would be watching on television. Do you know, I could care less about any of them. When I was playing, I had one goal, and that was to please my coach. And the reason why is because the day after the game, we would watch a movie of the game, and as we're watching the film... I would be sitting there with my coach and he would be evaluating and making comments on every step that I made. I was one-dimensional, I had one person to please, and that was my coach. You are going to go into the film room with God and there is going to be an evaluation of every word and every step. Is it your goal to receive glory from him to receive his smile Or are you playing to the crowd? Paul says that the person who is going to receive eternal life is playing to God Almighty. Uh, Closely related is what he says in verse 10. He says in verse 10, But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Uh, Notice the word peace replaces the word immortality in the first scenario. And so wouldn't it be logical to conclude because of the parallelism, number one, if you seek glory, God will give you glory. And, 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 and if you seek to be honored by God, he will give you honor. And if you seek immortality, you will be granted peace, eternal peace. That seems to make sense. And once again, the promise can be cashed in by everyone who does good. In other words, it is their life character over the long haul. Only the good die saved. 
once again, he says, it's for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then he, he rounds it off or he, he completes the chiasm in verse 11 by stating, for God shows no partiality. That, that is the point. Who you are makes no difference to him. He is a righteous and he is a fair judge. Now, admittedly, there are words and concepts in this text which I don't understand. But what I do understand frightens me, and that is because I am worried about some of you. You say that you are saved. You have good doctrine. You can articulate the gospel. You are astute enough to know, even as you are listening today, that this was not a great sermon. You have done enough to convince the elders that you are saved. You are religious. You are confident right now to enter the judgment. In other words, you are somebody, spiritually speaking, you are categorized as saved. And the text today says, so what? God is not impressed. The question is not, who are you? The question is, are you selfish? Do you love and worship and serve yourself? When you daydream, are you the hero of your drama? Are you obedient to the word or do you do evil? Are you seeking to please God? Has his smile motivated you? Are you seeking pleasure for yourself and the approval of others? Or are you seeking to please the Lord? Now here's the thing. I care who you are. It makes a difference to me, but I'm nobody. I don't matter. I'm not your judge. The point of the text is God does not care who you are. He is looking at what you have done over the long haul. Can you honestly say that the bent of your life is to please God, or would you have to admit, no, primarily I love myself, and my ambition is to please myself, and I really wish that I could just do whatever I want to do and that I didn't have to obey the law of God. Friends, you know, I, I, as a preacher, I wish I understood this passage better. I wish that I could have shooed the elephant out of the room. But you know, that is really irrelevant at the end of the day. The only relevant questions are, is do you serve yourself or do you serve the Lord? And I worry about some of you. I ask you honestly to examine yourselves and to pray to the Holy Spirit and to ask him to examine you. Point number one, the confusion. Been preaching for almost an hour. I have no idea what the text means. Point number two, the communication. I mean, are you going to live a holier life because you know what a chiasm is? Point number three, the content. Are you selfish or do you desire to please God? Point number four, finally and most importantly, the Christ. As we close today, I want you to consider Jesus Christ as he relates to this text from three different angles. First of all, 
gloriously. He perfectly honored God. In other words, he did good. He perfectly obeyed the truth. His works were perfect. John 8, 29. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. At his baptism and transfiguration, God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He was not selfish. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians chapter 2. Everything in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, which is positive, Jesus performed perfectly. And everything that is sinful, he never touched it once. And you say, so what? Second aspect of Jesus, and that is because Jesus lived a perfect life, he was an acceptable sacrifice for our sins. And the proof of God's acceptance of him is seen in the resurrection You see, if Jesus had sinned, God would have left him in the grave. But because Jesus was perfect, God raised him from the dead. And God loves sinners like you and me. And perfect Jesus died in place of sinners like you and me. The gospel is of first importance. Why did God do it? He did it because of love. For God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting, eternal life. And therefore, if you today conclude that you are a guilty sinner and not ready for the judgment, I have good news for you. I have gospel for you. And that is you can become ready and prepared for the judgment right now by accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you say, well, how do I do that? The answer is you just ask. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I heard an amazing testimony yesterday. I was preaching at a church over in New Jersey, and I was sitting there having lunch with a man, and I said, tell me your testimony. And he said, I was a teenager. I was 17 years old. I was walking home from work, and there was someone on the street corner who was witnessing, and he gave me the gospel, and I said, what do I have to do to be saved? And the guy said, all you have to do is ask. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And boom, he had never heard the gospel before that. He heard it one time. He said, Jesus, will you save me? The guy goes home. His mother was only 16 years older than him. His mother was in the house. He walks in the house and he says, hey, mom, get down here. I got to tell you something. He shares the gospel with his mother one time. And she says, what do I have to do to be saved? He says, you just have to ask. And his mother accepts Christ as their Savior. And you say, well, that's just kind of a cute story. I mean, is that, you know, what what was the result of that? Well, that was 40 years ago, and they're still both walking with the Lord. So what do I say to you today? Are you ready? If you're not ready, you can get ready. And the way that you get ready is you ask. Call upon the name of the Lord. Jesus is a wonderful Savior He will save you if you call upon him. And finally, the third observation concerning Christ. Not only did Jesus live a perfect life, and not only did he die to save sinners, but he and he alone can give you the heart and the power and the desire and the will to deny yourself and to obey God's word over the long haul and to prioritize the smile of God and to give you what you yourself do not have so that you may progress in your sanctification and live as it is described in Romans 2, 6 through 11. 
In other words, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, the Christ in this passage is, is that he can change you and he can make you different. Will you be perfect? Absolutely not. But the general bent of your life over the long haul will be that you will do good. And please remember, only the good die saved. Jesus is perfect. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus can enable us to live lives which are pleasing to God. Why does all of this come about? It's because God loves us. I hope that you have remembered that. All right, 43 down, 380 to go, which means what? We're getting there. We're getting there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we left to ourselves are bad But because of Jesus, we are perfect in your sight. And Lord, we desire by your spirit to live good lives. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. We cannot do it alone. Help us. Lord, if there's anybody here today who needs to ask you to save them, I pray, Lord, that they will do it right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.